Hey, Murdoch, I just started reading The Shepherd. Stop. Shepherd, that's not on the index page. So just no further. Get out of here with that stuff. The Shepherd of Hermas stands as an emblematic work reflecting the multifaceted spiritual, social, and moral milieu of the second century Christian community. Positioned amidst a time of profound transition, it paints a vivid tableau of a fledgling faith grappling with its identity, norms, and aspirations. Written primarily in Greek, this textual artifact offers a nuanced understanding of the early Christian ethos replete with its tensions, aspirations, and interpretations of divine revelations. The title itself, The Shepherd of Hermas, evokes pastoral images, symbolic of guidance, care, and nurturing. However, it's not just the pastoral guidance that the text offers. It's an apocalyptic and ethical journey encapsulated in visions, mandates, and parables. It transcends a mere narrative, becoming a metaphysical discourse where Hermas, the protagonist, engages in conversations with divine and allegorical figures. These dialogues delve deep into the soul's labyrinth, unearthing issues of sin, penance, virtue, and salvation. The piece's chronological setting is integral to its essence. The second century was a period of momentous change for the Christian community. Christianity, which started as a small Jewish sect, was evolving into a distinct religious identity, expanding its reach beyond the confines of Judea and into the heart of the Roman Empire. This expansion brought with it myriad challenges. New converts from diverse cultural and religious backgrounds brought their interpretations, traditions, and practices. The community was wrestling with questions about doctrinal purity, moral obligations, and the nature of post-baptismal sin. It was against this vibrant and volatile backdrop that the Shepherd of Hermas emerged. The narrative is not linear or simple recollection. It's interspersed with visions that are both esoteric and vivid. The allegories employed are profound, demanding contemplation and introspective from its readers. The mandates or moral commands lay down ethical guidelines, echoing the early Christian emphasis on righteous living in anticipation of the final judgment. The parables, on the other hand, elucidate these moral concepts grounding them in everyday experiences and challenges. Perhaps what makes the Shepherd of Hermas profoundly relatable even today is its central character, Hermas. He's not depicted as a saint or a prophet, but as an ordinary believer navigating the tumultuous waters of faith, doubt, and moral dilemmas. His dialogue, struggles, and revelations mirror the collective spiritual journey of the early Christian community. Furthermore, the text is not just an isolated religious treatise. It is intrinsically woven into the fabric of early Christian literature. Its very existence underscores the dynamism of religious writings during this epoch. The boundaries that today distinguish canonical scripture from other revered religious documents were still in flux. This is evidenced by the fact that the Shepherd of Hermas was not just a textual work for private contemplation, it was read aloud in congregations, resonating with the masses and echoing in the chambers of early Christian thought. In essence, the Shepherd of Hermas is more than a book. It's a testament to a time when Christianity was still defining its contours. It offers modern readers a window into a bygone era, allowing them to witness the struggles, triumphs, and spiritual yearnings of their religious ancestors. As we delve into its pages, we're not just engaging with the text, 
We're embarking on a journey through the annals of early Christian history, philosophy, and spirituality. With that, welcome to your Church Friends Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm Yurluch. And that was a lot. Yeah. The Shepherd yeah, of Hermos is a lot. Sh- yeah, it is. <laughs> welcome to the Shepherd of Hermos. Uh, we're going to have some fun. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like I took longer to read that. No, I was going to say I took longer to read that than it would take to read the book. I just felt like I was reading for a long time. But no, the, the, the book no, is the, not as long as Enoch, thankfully. But It is not as long as Enoch, but it is a, it is a pretty long book. It's not the Didache. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, it's not. Um, also, we're doing this remotely. Uh, just in case anyone's wondering why either one of us sounds like robots or there's weird in the episode um, because technology allows us to do that. So we're going to do it remotely today. Yeah. Also, I don't know if, about you, Chris, but we got to the end of Enoch. Things were already getting weird in that book. Then we started recording <laughs> at night and yeah. then like, we were weird. The book was weird. We are recording this in the afternoon, and I'm happy to be doing so. I just feel like we're, we're, we're turning a new page. We're into this new book. Not that this new book is any less fantastical than Enoch, but <laughs> at least I think we're a little more grounded. At least oh, for the yeah. intro. We'll see where it goes. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Enoch, uh, it did take some weird twists and turns when we started recording at night. We got into the animal apocalypse, the apocalypse of weeks. Uh, and then Noah's birth. So yeah, it it led to some more of its fun part, I'll say. Uh, but also, yeah, we were pretty tired when we were recording. Like we would both have very long days and then get here at like midnight to record or something and try to be coherent. So uh, apologies for those episodes if we don't sound fantastic. <laughs> it's probably a really small subset of people going, oh man, this new Your Church Friends, I'm digging it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they finally let loose. <laughs> no, we were just belligerently tired for most of the part. But yeah, we're, we're back in the middle of the afternoon and we're jumping into the Shepherd of Hermas, uh, which is a really interesting book compared to the other two that we went through. So the Didache, uh, you know, the writing of the 12, which really should, I we both agreed, should be in the back of the Bible at least. Um, Enoch, yeah, read uh, on your own uh, at home, but definitely read it. Uh, the Shepherd has a little bit more of this back and forth where it was really, really liked and some places where they had it in the Bible and then uh, other places it didn't. So, uh, I mean, the intro kind of covered a lot of what I had for my intro, uh, but basically it's a, it's visions, there's commandments, and there's parables uh, all revolving around the early life in Rome. Um, and usually when it is grouped together with stuff, it's grouped with the apostolic fathers. Um, uh, and I think we covered that before, if I'm not mistaken, I think we covered that in the forgotten book. So I don't know if we should do a quick recap of what those are, or just say like, go back and listen. If you have a recap, I recaps are always good. I really don't. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you offer it as a suggestion? (laughs) Uh, I think we covered it in a Jude or Second Peter, one of those two. Go back to the Forgotten Books and, and re-listen to those episodes. Um, but yeah, sh- uh, it was likely written uh, in or around Rome, which is pretty interesting because it does give a view, and, and like your intro said, it does give that view into the state of Christianity in Rome during the mid-2nd century. So uh, not only is this book like have good stuff in it, but it does give a good insight as to where Christians were 
uh, in their perspective of where they were at in Rome and in that time frame. Yeah. And a couple of things that you hit on where you broke it down into there's the visions, there's the mandates, and then there's the parables. I think that that's where in my mind, I feel like, oh, it's a shorter book because it's, it's three sections. And yeah, like, that's that's what they are. So that I think even as we're getting into this breakdown uh, further into, you know, covering this book, we're pretty much going to be covering that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There'll be. Uh, well, I don't want to say it because I said it in Enoch and it never happened. But uh, we're looking at this intro plus the three episodes of being broken down of uh, visions, parables and commandments. Yeah. So, again, this is the the intro to it. Yeah. Uh, it was possibly written over a stretch of time, ranging from at least the first century to the mid middle of the second century. Um, and really, we get some reference points in there because in the second vision, he references uh, Clement of Rome. And we know when Clement was writing, I think somewhere around 80 to 90 AD or somewhere around that time. And then in the Muratorian canon, it's uh, noted as being recently uh, written during uh pious in Rome. So that's around 140 AD. Uh, there have been some different views on authorship, which is interesting. So it, it seems like a lot of these old books have that, like who wrote it? And if there's no like absolute, but even when there is absolute, someone's like, nah, Paul didn't People write that. <laughs> yeah. Which real quick, because you did mention those couple things about pious, right? And mm -hmm. looking at that time frame, um, because all of these things, when you're looking at dating and as we talk, as we're going to go into it about like, oh, how it was held within, is it part of the Bible? Is it not part of the Bible and everything? Part of that is like, well, how early was it written, right? A lot of things that we have mm -hmm. in our Bibles, like, well, was it written by the apostles or the people who the apostles rolled with, right? So you, you have that. So if it's written earlier, like first century, end of the first century around, you know, time of Clement or whatever, it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's really recent as that. But then you push it to where, where Pius was and you're like, oh, that's deeper into the second century. And as all like these are all clues that we're giving as we're talking about this. I guess that's why I'm bringing it out is because this is another one of the books that as we've looked at the Didache being like, oh, man, this was kind of part of what they were using. Enoch also being, hey, this is what different Christian sects were using there. This is another one where it's like, hey, this is like potential Bible material here. So these things about like, oh, it was just written here. Like, yes, it was a long time ago, but it's also considerations that come into well should this be in the bible is this just a good thing to read all of that yeah and which gets into a big conversation that we'll have in a second too uh but the authorship uh some say there was multiple writers over time uh there was the debate over one writer um uh multiple writers with one redactor so a bunch of people wrote it and then someone like put it all together mm -hmm. and then origin believed that hermes was the Hermes mentioned in Romans 16, 14 that Paul wrote in. So you could go look that up. Um, I also read somewhere, and I think even when we talked to Scott McKnight, he covered this a little bit, but I read somewhere where the text itself was originally just a spoken story. And that a lot of times during that time, um, because uh, a lot of people weren't really had the ability to read, like telling the story of things was more the norm. Um, and using the imagery and all that other stuff that we'll see in, in uh, The Shepherd, it really helped people like engage with it. You know, like if you're mm -hmm. telling a good story, you just don't want it to be like, here's the letter of Paul and then all the kind of stuff. You know, the story has imagery because it keeps people captivated. Um, and then eventually it was turned into uh, what we have in, as the writings. Yeah. And when you're looking at that um, authorship, again, I, it's so annoying that 
oh, this was written even as said even if it said very directly signature, fingerprint, all this stuff, mm-hmm. right? It's still just like I, I don't know. It's like you guys need to knock it off. But part of it, looking at it being written earlier, he does identify himself as Hermas. And as you brought up, some people think like, oh, maybe it's the Hermas that uh, Paul referenced. But then did you get into that thing going back to that guy, Pius, is that some people were thinking that he this Hermas might have been like the brother of Pius. Oh, no, but I do remember hearing that. I didn't see it in the study when I got into it. But when I was watching videos, I remember someone talking about that. Yeah, so that's one of those things, too. And if you're if you have uh, Catholic uh, leanings, then you might call him Pope Pius, right? (laughs) If you're looking at, no, there's been popes all the way back, then you're looking at this guy Pius, who, you know, really well known and respected within Christian community. They were looking at, well, maybe this Hermas was, forget if it's like the brother, stepbrother, half brother, any relative to uh, this Pius, which that's even where they're looking at the popularity or maybe where it has more intrigue, like, oh man, Pius. Like, it's the potential Pope's like brother and he's over here having visions and all of these things. Like, isn't this a cool Mm -hmm. book to have? Um, Personally, I would say I don't think that that's the Hermes it is. I would lean more towards an earlier date and (laughs) not, not that guy, but that's me, my, my professional opinion, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're uh... (laughs) a, I like that your professional opinion. Uh, we we've done over a hundred something podcasts. I've got to be a professional something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things I did read um, that I found interesting was uh, from the Apocalypse of Peter, mm. where it mentions the the unrighteous Hermas. Um, so a lot of people like to take away the credit from what the shepherd was. We're using that saying like no like the Apocalypse of Peter, they were writing that this guy was the unrighteous. Um, and we will kind of see why when we get into like next week and some of the episodes, why that was kind of there. But like, it was just more of a, a thing I read that it, to discredit the book itself, because uh, really there was no other writing as popular before the fourth century than the Shepherd of, Shepherd of Hermas. Um, it was probably the most popular uh, non-canonical writings out there. Uh, you have Clement, Irenaeus, Origen were all supporters of it. Um, Clement, uh, he frequently quoted it and explicitly referred to it as divinely inspired. Um, So you can see where he stood on that. Uh, Origen used it freely with scriptural arguments in his early years. And then I read that he didn't not so much as time went on, uh, but that was probably because he moved from Alexandria to Caesarea uh, and the shepherd wasn't really known there that much. So he just spoke to his audience. Yeah, I think Origen kind of flip-flop on his stuff as he progressed in years as well. Um, mm-hmm. Beyond those two, as you went a little bit further, I think you get a Tertullian. That might be a familiar name. Uh, he kind of held the shepherd. And then Eusebius of Caesarea. Um, mm-hmm. Look at, in his church history, he classifies Shepherd of Hermas as among the spurious, spurious books, but acknowledges its popularity. So he wasn't calling it canon, but he was saying, like, hey, that was a popular book. So that's where we get these writings. But I think that one of the things that really cements it in as well when we're looking at stuff is uh, the Codex Sinaiticus. <laughs> Codex Sinaiticus. I always struggle with that one. Um, which that was an early, basically, collection of Christian writings, kind of proto-Bible type thing, a codex being a collection of the writings coming in. And uh, that was in the 4th century, so back in the 300s, where this thing dates back to. And yeah, that's where you have, you know, all the Bible books in there. And then you have Shepherd of Hermas in that collection. 
And then the only other book that's not included in the Bible that was included in that codex would be the Epistle of Barnabas, which is also an early, yeah. another really good book. Something that could have been included in this series, but we that can be for part two at some future date. <laughs> Epistle yeah. of Barnabas is real cool, but uh, that, that's for later times. But the fact that it got included in that collection is, you know, really speaks to how highly it was regarded. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I, uh, with Tertullian that I thought was interesting uh, that he mentioned it uh, uh, because Hermas in one of the visions was praying seated on a couch, that he said that was the preferred uh, position of prayer. So he hmm. used that as like, no, that's how you're supposed to pray. Uh, but later when he became more of a Montanist, yeah, he um, switched up on it. He switched up and he called the book twice uh, Lovers of Adulterers and The Shepherd of Adulterers. Um, just because uh, when we get into it, where Hermes's position was uh, for uh, divorce and adultery and marital reconciliation. Um, but yeah, he was interesting just because of that. One thing I did find interesting too, when I looked into it, um, uh, by like the early third century, the Montanism was finally kind of being like rejected as like, okay, that's heresy. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and Hermes then started getting lumped in with that. Uh, because of the visions, the sexual self-discipline, um, and then the prominence of a female leadership figure. Uh, right. But then Tertullian, who was a Montanist, uh, he still considered it to be too lenient and, about certain sins. Almost, uh, I, I loved it because the thing I read it, it had quotes, too liberal. Um, so I thought that was just pretty funny when we were talking about like him in general and like the view it had from there. Which... I know I hinted at it in the intro, just kind of talking about some of the maybe the controversy or things that were happening at the time. But when you're talking about it being liberal, it's some of that is like, oh, what are the views on like finding repentance and forgiveness post baptism, mm -hmm. which for pretty much any Christian that's alive today, we're like, yes, we all sin. We all get forgiveness. That's all there. But back in the early church, the fact that uh, Hermas was saying, yeah, you know, for some sins, you might be able to find that people are like, well, what are you talking about? Like you were already cleansed from your sin. After that, you got dirty. Like, that's it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that really was a controversy to where it would be a liberal thing to say, yes, after your baptism, you can find forgiveness, repentance. So, oh, the uh, the controversies that we'll find that will find seem completely foreign to <laughs> Our, our current ears, yeah. our contemporary ears, yeah. That's what I really uh, liked in the study of the, just this intro was like, uh, like what you're mentioning, that uh, there was still controversy within that time frame. Like, it just seems like no matter what time in history, there's always controversy when it comes to the scripture. And, it, you know, it usually just comes down to like how people interpret things, how people see things, not claiming that the shepherd is scripture, but in a, even an ancient writing like this, that a lot of people said like, this book is good. It's very helpful. I mean, Athanasius said that. I think Didymus the Blind even quoted it as authoritative. So all these ancient church fathers saying like, it's good, it's good, it's good. But still on the flip side, you have other people saying like, nah, it's not, it's too much of this. Uh, I guess it's like for everything that changes, nothing changes is my thought with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. But anyways, I, I think you mentioned, too, uh, that it was found in some places in the Bible, or some places had it uh, written along the Bible. Uh, one of the places that I saw, it said uh, that Hermas was uh, part of the Apocrypha section, and hmm. uh, it was between Tobit and Maccabees for a while. 
Uh, other places had it uh, after the wisdom of Solomon, and then uh, some more had it between Psalms and Proverbs. So, uh, you know, it it was in there as held in, in a big regard. I think that's what I'm trying to really get at with this part, part of it is that um, we hear the shepherd of Hermas and we're like, what? And back then, like the before the fourth century, like this was one of the regarded books. And within that, and I might need you to fill in some of the blanks because my notes are a little bit lacking in this area because you're talking about before the fourth century, super popular and that's what's happening. But then I brought up that thing of the Codex Sinaiticus. Man, just find someone else on me. (laughs) Find someone else on YouTube who says it correctly and just interpose it onto my voice. (laughs) Get that robot person that teaches you how to pronounce all the all the words. Um, But we didn't find that until the mid nineteenth century. That Codex, I think we Mm -hmm. found it in Saint Catherine's Monastery. So it's a similar story to kind of the Didache. She was like, oh, we didn't have this thing. And then it got found like, oh, we had a collection of books. And someone actually looked through the books and there was this document that we knew existed, but we didn't have. And I know that we discovered that codex in the mid 19th century. But do you know, like, was there a period where um, the shepherd was just kind of lost to history, so to speak? Yeah, I did read somewhere that uh, that it was uh, when it went towards more of the east, it started losing its like popularity or fame and just not so much being talked about uh but towards like the west it still was kind of talked about it just kind of lost its steam after a while uh but i know uh, i read that augustine used it heavily Um, but did it fall off because just like the didicate kind of fell off and we couldn't find any more copies like has there been copies available through church history or was this kind of a rediscovery of the thing that we knew that they had back then uh so there's the codex of athos and that's dated to the 15th century and it contained almost the entire book. And then there's the Michigan Papyrus, uh, dated to 250 and was published in 1937. So I don't think it was lost as much as it was just like not really circulating anymore and therefore well, see, kind of lost. Right there, it said it was 8250, but it wasn't mm-hmm. published until 1937. Mm-hmm. And then the other one being the 15th century. So it's like, what happened between 4th, 5th century and 15th century? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I think it goes down to that part where we talked about even with Enoch that some of our history just gets stopped yeah. and it stopped. Yeah. And that's where we look at it today. And it's like, wait, I remember when you uh, you told me about the book and you're like, have you ever read this? And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> and then I, I read it um, and I was like, oh, yeah, this thing's a really interesting thing. And then you start looking at it and you're like, wait. How did, and I guess that's the bigger question as we go through is how did something that was regarded so high uh, just escape all use? I know that we use this as the example all the time, but it's just because of its popularity, it just lends itself. But if you look at like the purpose driven, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine just like going however far out into the future. That's a really good point. Yeah. And like, think about how many purpose-driven there are. I don't know if if our listeners go to thrift stores. Go to a thrift store. You'll find one. Like, they're there. Doesn't matter what thrift store you go to. You'll find at least one. Like, mm-hmm. purpose-driven is everywhere. But just imagine getting to a point to where all you had was the writings and the sermons and even this podcast referencing, oh, yeah, the purpose-driven. But all of, like, the copies are gone. And then you don't even hear about it for, like, hundreds of years. You're like, wait, what was this thing that blew up, like? in the early 2000s yeah you know what i mean now none of us read this thing where do you even find this thing like you know what i mean it shaped christianity at that time and you just find people like what are you even talking about the perp-? like you know so oh 
Yeah, <laughs> it's so different when we're doing this remotely. I thought that like you your froze. Was... That's why I was looking at you and I was like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just did that really good stare uh, because your mouth started moving, but nothing came out. And I was like, wait, what just happened? <laughs> uh, we both glitched without glitching. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Matrix heard us talking about it. That's why. Uh, you know, that's a really good point. I, I really did uh, catch what you're getting before you even said it was that like, yeah, just think. 2000 years from now and they're like wait we found this lost article of the purpose-driven book like this thing seemed to be highly regarded because we see it in all these other things and yeah so that, it is a good point that something except even this is the early church right like this yeah. is like okay rick warren in the early 2000s but like this was shaping our mm -hmm. faith and yeah. where did it go Ha <laughs> ha, the dude here. You ever have those gnarly visions and dreams that leave you scratching your head, wondering if they're straight from the big guy upstairs? Well, hang loose, bro. The Heavenly Hearing Aids got your back with the Rad Vision and Dreams Edition. Just slap the hearing aid in your ear, dial in the God frequency, and hit up Gabriel's assistance. Boom! Suddenly those trippy visions and dreams become crystal clear straight from the man upstairs and his heavenly crew. Imagine shredding in your dreams, catching waves of end time vibes, spotting a mega tree or seven towering mountains, witnessing epic angel battles, or even crushing through heavenly portals. When you wake up, the heavenly hearing aid would drop the knowledge bomb, giving you the lowdown on what those dreams and visions really mean. No more guessing, my dudes. And check this out, bro. It's not just about heavenly stuff. The heavenly hearing aid will also let you know if it's legit from God or just a funky side effect from those late night chili cheese fries. Say goodbye to confusion, my dude, and let the heavenly hearing aid be your ultimate guide. Don't sleep on this, bro. Grab your very own heavenly hearing aid from all rad retail spots out there. The heavenly hearing aid Helping you hear what's up in the heavens and getting you stoked on what the man upstairs is saying to you. Uh, so maybe let's look at some of the content of what's inside of it. Just a brief overview and uh, we'll kind of further that conversation. We talked about already. It's broken up into three sections. There's five visions. Uh, the fifth vision, uh, it kind of serves as an introduction to the commandments. And there's 12 commandments and then 10 parables. So in the visions, uh, vision one, Hermes, sees a woman bathing and desires her, then is confronted about his sin by an elderly woman who represents the church. So fun when we get into that next week. Uh, in Vision 2, he receives a, a revelation in the form of a book, and after fasting and praying, is granted its interpretation. Forgiveness is possible for those who truly repent now and cleanse themselves of double-mindedness. Vision 3 is of a church uh, as a tower built on a foundation of apostles, uh, apostles, teachers, etc., with its diversity portrayed by a variety of stones used to build it. And then vision four is this huge monster appears and it foreshadows the tribulation. And then in vision five, the shepherd replaces the elderly woman and proceeds to introduce the following 12 commandments and parables. So that's the visions in a nutshell. So we can do visions in a nutshell, which can serve as a good intro because we're going to be going into that. Are you going to give all 12 mandates or commands? No, 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 no. Okay, good. I was like, you, you got to you, you gotta tease you gotta things out. Yeah, leave the hook out there, yeah. Back. yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I really felt the first vision was a good teaser of like, wait, he sees a woman, desires her, and then is confronted by an elderly woman uh, and saying he sinned. <laughs> like, Honestly, when you read kind of like what he get called, what he gets called out for and the seriousness of it, you're kind of like, oh, OK, I need to reconsider some things. <laughs> but um, not to dive into that now. That's 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 the yeah. come next time that's future uh the 12 commandments are just sets of teachings on subjects of faith simplicity truth uh sexual purity marriage uh the two ways is thrown in there again fearing god uh restraining from certain behaviors truthfulness cheerfulness self-control patience grief uh of others being single-minded sadness um and discerning prophecy and desires so and these commands coming from the shepherd yes right these yeah. are coming from an angelic figure embodying the pastoral archetype, right? Mm-hmm. Coming and giving this guidance. So when you're looking at the shepherd of Hermas, here's the shepherd coming in with this guidance. And it's kind of cool where you get, you're going from these visions, right? So that's kind of um, like revelation, like God's like revealing something. Mm-hmm. And then following that, you're getting instruction. It follows a cool pattern. Yeah. There. Yeah. yeah, it really does. It, it uh, it ties in really well. Uh, then we get into the parables. Uh, that's a series of 10 allegories on various aspects of moral uh, piety and holiness. The parables extend uh, allegories or similes utilizing cities, vineyards, trees, shepherds, sticks, mountains, a tower, and a garment. Um, uh, parable 8, for example, is a vision of a willow tree uh, and various kinds of sticks, uh, some green and budded and some half green and half dry, others dry and and filled with insects. Uh, each of them represents a certain type of behavior or person or Christian lifestyle. So uh, kind of similar to the wheat story that, you know, the seed story that Jesus told. The one thing that I thought was cool is that like how the book ends, it's just, it ends with this charge to Hermas to write down and communicate what he's seen and to live according to it. Um, so I thought that was cool, especially, uh, and I didn't tie it into your intro, um, but the the reason that this is even like to me was like, all right, this is pretty cool is because like Hermas wasn't an apostle. He wasn't um, even one of the like people under an apostle. It's like the first writing really where it's just like, hey, this is a normal guy who's uh, just kind of telling the tale of his faith and where it journeyed from, from that beginning story of desiring uh, another woman to hey, live this way and follow it. So I, I really do like that aspect of it. Yeah, and there's so many layers to that living out the faith type of thing. I know that I said, well, here's the revelation of the vision, and then you get the guidance of the mandates. But then when you bring it into the parables to where it's like, here's how to kind of link that into everyday living, you know, using these examples that you mm-hmm. see in real life, you know, here's how to solidify that out and really seeing that play out. And where you just see that arc of going from God revealing something to then defining it a bit and then bringing that into living it out. And when you see that that is the journey for an individual, right? That's our our walk. Like God reveals himself and then we come in and get the instruction and then we figure out how to live that instruction out. But then I think that on the broader scale, you're seeing that happen almost with what's happening within the church as a whole. It's like Jesus has been revealed, 
and he's brought this teaching and they're trying to figure out how to live it out. And I can feel like you can almost see the community life tying into that as well. It's a really cool narrative that just hits on so many different levels of, uh, of, of living the Christian life. Yeah. It's... Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say that said, looking at some of these visions and stuff, it's, it's like, all right, can we just put the Didache in the Bible then? Because if you guys were pretty much putting <laughs> this thing in the Bible, this this book gets weird. And yeah. I think that we're hitting on three different books in this in this uh, season. They're like the Didache is pretty normal. It's just like here's some teachings, here's some stuff. It was real early, and like it's it's hard to argue with this. Is what's getting put forth unless you want to pick on what baptism should look like. No, you shouldn't be allowed to do that part, right? Yeah. But then you get Enoch, which is just fully fantastical that gives him like, is this history? Is this just allegory? Like, what is going on? You're talking about the son of man. Like you get this kind of thing. And like, that's there. And that's like real weird. And then this is a mix of the two towards like, no, here's how to live it out. And here's some teaching, but also some real weird visions kind of showing what the church is. But it's also highly accepted into the early church. I don't know. It's just mm. an interesting three books that we picked. Um but given that this one was really well received, I'm like, all right, the Didache's in the Bible then. <laughs> <laughs> you got to start publishing your own and putting it in there. Uh, yeah, I, I read somewhere too that it had a lot in common with the book of James. And I was you know, just going to say the book of James a second ago. Uh, so I got to it first. Yeah, it has a lot in there. Uh, but I really did like uh, what you're saying too, because it is like, Throughout the book, Hermas wrestles with whether repentance and forgiveness uh, after baptism are available. And like that was a thing that it was like you were saying earlier that once you kind of received this teaching of Jesus, it was like, yeah, you go and do it and all that other stuff will go away uh, kind of in a sense. But it was like, wait, no, I'm still struggling with fleshly things like what what's going on here. So it was a big part of that insight of where they were at, the mindset of the people. Um I think he finally gets to the point of his like, it's repent, but do it quickly, just in case. Like, you have to do it quickly because you just don't know. Um, one of the other things that I really thought was interesting in, in the book of Ho is the relationship between the poor and the rich. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I'm going to use the word non-elite because uh, there was a commentary I read by Carolyn Osik. Hopefully I got her name right. And she just she has a very great commentary on the Shepherd of Hermos, but she wrote, uh, "Non-elite doesn't necessarily mean uh, economically poor." However, the terminology of poverty in ancient Mediterranean language has little correspondence with modern understanding of poverty, but has rather to do with the maintenance of status and honor, however mm -hmm. limited that the family claims to possess. Without sufficient economic means, a family cannot maintain its claim claimed honor status the church increasingly began to function as an economic unit uh, and eventually replacing a household as the primary center of economic distribution that process was in the early stages in the early second uh, century as the church began to foster economic interdependence within its own ranks this is precisely what was not happening to those perceived as wealthy who refused to associate with other christians uh, for fear their parsonage would be uh, presumed upon so yeah it, that is such a thing to pull out and i know that we touch on it every so often on this podcast mm -hmm. but the thing of honor and shame culture but really looking at the thing of honor and you were talking about economic status it's like um yeah honor as being a currency right it's just like well you could mm -hmm. have money but then if you did something dishonor your family name or whatever it's like well you're 
you're no good for nothing at that point, right? Or it's just like, mm-hmm. you barely have any money, but you're an honorable family, but that there is that tie-in of just like, but it's dishonorable to be poor. So, you know, you, you kind of got to keep it up. But yeah, honor just being such a huge thing. And I, f- I forgot that th- that stuff is kind of an interwoven theme in the book as well. Yeah, uh, that's really a lot of what I got other than uh, just that insight into what well, Rome again, again from Carolyn, she said, Though Hermas has very little to say about local church structure, the assumption is that the early 2nd century Rome communities were still meeting in house churches with occasionally larger meetings of the whole assembly of the a city. Uh, by this time in Rome, the entire assembly must have been quite large, perhaps too large to meet all together. Uh, so just again, this insight into where uh, the Christian uh, faith was as a community in whole and what was really happening and changing there. Uh, And then the last thing I got is that Jesus's name is never mentioned, uh, but the title Christ is, uh, and only three times, which again, I don't think has to be a necessity when we have a book like Esther uh, that doesn't even mention God at all that's in the Bible. Uh, But you know, when you're, when you're looking at some of these books, you could see, um, I guess the illusions of it and the name kind of maybe not specifically being said, but the presence being there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think kind of other than that, just things that it touches on to be aware of from the beginning is the idea of kind of the, um, I said it in the intro, but like the apocalyptic type ideas behind it, just that there is the anticipation of Christ's return and judgment coming from that, which again, we see that coming in the importance of living the righteous life, like, hey, judgment is going to happen. So how are you handling your life in light of that, which as we've said several times comes into, well, what happens if you sin and, and how does that play out? But that kind of uh, apocalyptic thought going through it. And another interesting thing, which briefly just talked about there being the shepherd who is an angelic figure coming in, mm-hmm. is just the idea of like the intercession of angels and the interaction between the human and the spirit realm that we got a lot during Enoch, right? That there was that going on. It's like, that's back again in this to where you have, whereas Enoch is just like, well, he's Enoch. He never sinned and he walked with God all his days. Here we have just Hermas, right? Hermas, who was maybe a slave who got freed, who, (laughs) you know, had a wife and a couple kids. And here's this angel coming down to reveal these things to him. And the reality there as well of just, there is a realm beyond our material realm that we see and how much that was I don't think just shaping the thoughts of the early church, but was the reality within which their faith functioned. You know, a lot of times people are like, oh, we believe in angels. It's like, what effect does that have on your life? It's just like, uh, uh, they're there. (laughs) Spoken as a Baptist. If you're Pentecostal, then, you know, they're they're all over you. And uh, if you're... if you're army around your whole house. Yeah, if you're Catholic or Orthodox, you probably have your guardian angel. Guardian you know angel. him by name. He's coming and chilling on your couch, praying with you, right? So that's <laughs> happening. But as a Baptist, you're just like, oh, angels exist. Yeah, I know they're there. I see them doing things in the scriptures, but that's the only time they ever do anything. And I think that where you have this interaction of a Christian with an angel, who's, again, not an apostle, not a whatever, I really think that that shapes... Um, what Christian life is like as well. Yeah. I had a, a joke when you were talking about the Catholic and Orthodox, when you said sitting on the couch, I just thought, yeah, they're probably sitting on there together, watching good omens on a Amazon prime together. Uh, have you seen that show? No. Oh, it's, it's 
it's really good. Um, Sidetrack. It's about angels and demons and their parts and how they play and what they play in kind of history and everything. So uh, a part of me wants to say, like, have you talked to me about this on the show or off the show? It sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, I think it was off the show. Yeah, I have no idea. Season two just dropped. Anyways, uh, not plugging them. <laughs> Are they a new advertiser for the show? Yeah. Like, what's going the show on? Brought to you by Good Omens on Amazon Prime. Um, no, uh, but yeah, that's really all I've got for uh, this introduction. Because you know, the more we get into it, the more we'll probably talk deeper into these uh, subjects. But I really just do again think that uh, the concept of repentance and forgiveness after baptism uh, being available was so huge to them, as where we just take it as something that's common um, but that was such a huge theological uh thing for the people at that time it was it was just like theologically a game changer for them uh and then again the idea of wealth and and uh, the wealthy and the poor but not necessarily in the poor that we think and that's why i wanted to read that quote because it's not really always about what we think um when we read poor it's not about like people who don't have money it's about people who uh, don't have that honor or prestige. But the other part that I really wanted to hit on was, and again, we'll get into it more, but just to throw it out there before we wrap up is uh, how stingy people were becoming because it was like you became part of the church and your wealth was no longer your own. It was something to be shared with the community. And people were like, no, I'm going to not hang around with the Christians now because I don't want my house taken. I don't know where that's going to lead further into the next episodes when we get into it, but it's just something to think about before we dive into this uh, this book. Yeah, there's quite a few things that as we talk about, I keep wanting to circle back around to Mike. Let's talk about that. I was like, no, that's what the future episodes are for. So yeah, I think just in summary, kind of taking this book as a modern journey today. It's a modern journey taking this book from the dusty shelves of a remote monastery and bringing this into, I mean, there's been all kinds of vibrant discussions in academia and churches bringing it in. And I think that that does underscore its uh, enduring relevance, right? That we are talking about it. And as we get into it, it is relevant for today. Uh, but, you know, whether it's scholars dissecting it or, you know, even us just trying to come in and read it, seeking spiritual edification, there's just um, a lot in it. There's a lot in it that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, and we'll have our buddy Josiah with us for two episodes. Ah, yes. You hear that, Josiah? Your time has come. Yeah, he's going to sit with us. He's a Shepherd of Hermos expert. <laughs> <laughs> Putting a lot on his shoulders there. Uh, no, he's just another guy like us who has studied it and read it. But anyways, I'm going to wrap up. I'm Chris. I'm Mirza. We are your church friends. Thanks for listening. of the Bible.